All right. Well, great to see everybody today. We are continuing today in our series, Jesus Encounters. And we're looking at this wonderful story here. And our message is entitled, Jesus and the Woman Who Was a Sinner. And just on a personal note, this passage is one that is so just from from my perspective it's just a, such a beautiful story i i've always uh, loved this story just the you know the the beauty of the way jesus so graciously deals with this woman who is obviously a sinner and in the story we we get a picture of Jesus's dealings with sinners. And so that, you know, that's part of what we're doing as we're going through this series here. But an an interesting note that we have to start on today is that as great as the story is, it is, uh, it's a controversial story in that there's a, a theological debate or a scholarly debate as to whether this story is true. I don't know if you realize that or not. Um, if you have a newer Bible uh, version that you're using, you, you might even see it. Maybe you've seen it already, but you might see it as you look down there. There might be a footnote that says, this, this is true in most newer translations, that says that, uh, or something like, the, uh, the earliest manuscripts do not include this portion chapter 7, verse 53 through eight eleven, And the reason why these newer versions of the Bible put that in there is because the passage is not found in most of the earliest manuscripts. But the passage is found in the majority of manuscripts. And so the question is, is this a legitimate, authentic story? Did this really happen? Or is this something that was just uh, made up and inserted into the text later, as some would suggest? So among scholars, there are three theories. The first theory is the one that I just uh, mentioned, that, that the passage is an invention and an insertion from a later period. It is fraudulent. It didn't happen. John did not include it in his original gospel. There are, there are scholars who, who absolutely believe that. And so that's why you have that little disclaimer in the newer versions of the Bible. Now, there's also scholars who see the passage as authentic. Um, The events recorded did indeed happen, but it was probably originally found in Luke or one of the other synoptic gospels. So, so again, they don't see it as being part of John, even though they do believe it's authentic. They see it as uh, maybe being part of Luke. Uh, some say maybe part of Matthew. But then there's a third group of scholars, and they believe, and I stand with them in this, Uh, They believe that it belongs right here where we find it. It is original to John. He included it because it really did happen, just as he says. And the reason some of the oldest manuscripts do not contain it is because 
they were tampered with and it was erased. That, I think, is actually the case. And someone as uh, illustrious in church history as Augustine, he believed the same thing. And so did Ambrose and Jerome. But Augustine said this regarding the passage. He said, some were afraid of the passage lest it should lead to laxity of morals and so had erased it from their manuscripts. So that's a pretty straightforward and serious uh, accusation there that Augustine makes. But of course, if you've heard that name, Augustine, or sometimes pronounced Augustine, um, many people would recognize him as as a a leading authority in the the history of the church. He um, not only said that about the text, he wrote commentary on uh, each of the verses of the text. He preached from the passage several times. He obviously believed that it was authentic. And even though there is this scholarly debate that's gone on, I think that um, Augustine's position is the accurate one. Let me just quote to you another writer. He said this. He said that such an event did happen and that we have an authentic record of what occurred is accepted by the great bulk of critics. So the majority of the critics, uh, they do see it as authentic, Nevertheless, they expunge it from the text of John. So for some reason, they just don't think that it should be a part of John. But this writer goes on, he says, the difficulty, however, is one indication of the surpassing originality of the narrative. It is hard to imagine the motive which would induce any of the followers of Christ or of John to have invented it. While there are reasons drawn from the ascetic tendencies mighty at work in certain sections of the church for its omission. So this writer says, let me just translate what he said for you. He says, um, it's hard to imagine that somebody would invent this story. And, you know, I I have read both sides of this argument for years. And, um, you know, some of the scholars say, oh, well, you know, the Greek here is, is, it's not exactly like John normally, you know, would use the Greek. And so we see a discrepancy there. And, um, and some would say it doesn't really fit with the, the story. It sort of breaks into the story and, and you lose the continuity of the story. And, and all of those to me are just, I just don't agree with them. But what, so what this guy is saying is that, you know, it's hard to imagine somebody inventing this story. This, the, the story just has this ring of authenticity. But then he says, but it's not, in other words, what he's saying, it's not hard to imagine that it would have been omitted from the text. Why? Because of the ascetic tendencies that were mighty at work in certain sections of the church. So let me explain that. In certain sections of the church, a couple hundred years after the apostolic age, asceticism came in. And now asceticism is the idea that... um, it comes from Greek philosophy, basically. And it's the idea that, that the physical material universe is, is all corrupted and evil. And therefore, the body is corrupted and evil thoroughly. And therefore, the body and all of its um, natural desires and so forth are corrupted and evil. And um, there should never be any kind of um, enjoyment or pleasure derived from the body because of the evil nature of the body. So that that teaching crept into the church early on. And so what Augustine 
said and what is being said here is that it was the people who had that mindset that would have omitted this because they saw in it too much grace for a sinner. They feared that if this remained in the text, that it would just sort of, you know, give people and particularly women the idea that they could actually go commit adultery and be forgiven by God. So they wanted to make sure that that didn't happen. So I personally think that that's exactly what we have with this, this controversy that developed. But think about this with me for just a second. Jesus was not only too radical for the Jewish religious leaders in showing mercy to sinners. We've talked about that before. And all through the Gospels, you find, remember, one of the big stumbling blocks for the religious leaders of the day regarding Jesus was that he associated too closely with sinners. They accused him of that all of the time. But not only was he a stumbling block for the Jewish leaders, apparently he was also too radical for some of the early church leaders. So isn't this crazy to think about it? That, you know, Jesus, who brings to us the gospel of God's grace and the New Testament uh, is written, the, the theme of the New Testament is the grace of God. Yet a couple hundred years down the road, uh, the grace of God has been so distorted and so blurred that this story becomes a scandal to church leaders. They're like, no, no, Jesus couldn't have done this. This is, this is way too much grace. That would be their actual thinking uh, behind it. So Jesus showing mercy to uh, a sinful woman results in these church leaders being stumbled. This is, this is the scandal of grace. You see, when we really grab hold of the radical grace of God, for some people it's scandalous because it seems like, wait, wait, you, I mean, what are you saying? That, that God's just going to forgive that person? But, but don't you know what they've done and how horrible they've been? And you're going to say that God can just wipe that away? Well, that's grace. But for some, it is a scandal. So, so that, we needed to look at that because, um, like I said, many of the newer versions of the Bible uh, say that the passage, uh, you know, should not be here. Uh, but we want to affirm that it should be here, that this is indeed the word of the Lord, no question about it in my mind. So, but now let's walk through the passage together. We want to look at the scene itself. Uh, we want to look at the, the Savior in particular. We want to look at the accusers that are here. We want to look at uh, Jesus dealing with the woman. Then we want to look at the woman's response uh, to how Jesus deals with her. So let's look at the scene. What happened is... Um, after this dispute that's recorded in chapter 7 be, uh, between the religious leaders, everyone went to his own house. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, spent the night there. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. So Jesus was teaching in the temple. Now, the reference here is to the precinct of the temple and these, these porticos that uh, 
where the people would gather. So Jesus would often teach there. And so here it is in the morning and he's got a crowd around him. He's teaching. And suddenly the whole thing is disrupted by this band of men who come basically dragging this woman before Jesus and demanding that he pass a a judgment upon her. Now, you can only imagine what a fearful moment this would have been for the woman. She's arrested, essentially, by these guys. So this is a band of um, self-appointed moral policemen. That's what they are. And they, they grab this woman, they, they uh, take her and carry her there to the temple, and, and they put her right down before Jesus. So y- you can imagine that this would have been uh, a, quite a frightening experience for her, and she was probably quite hysterical um, when she ended up there before Jesus. Their treatment of her was ruthless, it was heartless, it was merciless. And remember who these people are. They are the religious leaders of the day. They are the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the most devoted, um, Bible-believing, committed, you know, people at, at the time. And as we pointed out before, not all of them had this hyper self righteousness, but this band obviously did. So not only was the treatment ruthless and merciless, but notice the total injustice here. Because if the woman was indeed caught in the very act of adultery, as they said was the case, then you have to ask the question, well, where is the other person that she was engaged in adultery with? Why is there no man here? So you see that this is a completely unjust situation. But then John tells us that the whole thing was driven by uh, deceit on the part of the leaders. The, the woman was just a pawn. What they were looking to do was they were looking to trap Jesus. And John tells us this. It's, he says um, that, verse 4, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that she should be stoned, such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. So what they were trying to do was trap Jesus between uh, violating the state's authority or compromising with the Mosaic law and losing face with the people. So if Jesus says, no, 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 don't don't stone her, or, or no, if Jesus says, do stone her, then he has, he's now immediately in conflict with the state, with the Romans, because the Romans are the only ones that can uh, call for uh, a person's execution. So Jesus is usurping the state, and they're seeking to get him in trouble with the authorities. But if Jesus says that we're to have mercy on her, then of course, notice what they said. Moses in the law said to stone her. So they're looking to set Jesus against Moses, and then popular opinion would hopefully turn against him. So that's the motive with these men. This is really what's happening here, and this is what they're doing. 
But it, it seems that they've trapped Jesus. And they, on many occasions, as we go through the Gospels, we find that they, they had sought to ensnare him. And it seems here that they, they maybe have trapped him. Years ago, I was reading the story of a man, the story of his conversion. The man's name is Arthur Katz. And he wrote a book called Ben Israel, Odyssey of a Modern Jew. Now, Arthur Katz was a left-wing radical back in the 60s. He was a Marxist. He was an atheist. He was a Jew. Uh, He was up in the Berkeley area back in those days. And yet in, in the course of events, he came to search out the New Testament. And in his book, um, Ben Israel, Odyssey of a Modern Jew, he tells the story of reading this passage and uh, of the impact that it had on him. And as he's telling the story of reading the, of reading the, the passage here, he's, he's telling all of the suspense that he went through as he reads the story. Now, he, he's not a believer at this time, but he's, he's a searcher. And, and listen to what he said. So he wrote this. He said, the law said the woman must be stoned. Yet Jesus had been teaching forgiveness. And earlier in the book, it actually said God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus, in his mind, Jesus was trapped. And so he goes on and he says, he says, what would I say if I were Jesus? He says, I searched my mind, exhausting my resources of logic and reason, and finally conceded there was no answer. So he's reading this story, and and in his book, he tells about how he got to this place in the story, and he just couldn't read it any further. He shut the book. It's like, no, no, no. At this this point, he's, he's being drawn to Jesus, and he feels like Jesus is in this trap, Now think about it. He's never read this story before. He doesn't know the outcome of it. So the suspense is too great for him. The fear is too great that Jesus is going to end up, uh, you know, not being able to get out of this one. So he, he closes the book. But then he says, fully expecting the worst, I reopened the book and I read on. I, I remember reading the story years ago, and I remember he was, he was on a ship somewhere, and he was, you know, I remember it was cold, and he was describing how he was all bundled up, and the, the wind was, and the spray was blowing in his face, but he just couldn't put this down. He was so captivated by it. So here at this point, he reopens the book, and he read on, and he said, I found Jesus bending over, poking his finger in the dirt. So we'll leave that for a moment. We'll come back to it in a second. So, but let's, let's go back to the actual scene here. So we come to look at the Savior now. So they come, they bring the woman, they set her in the midst, they accuse her. They say she's been caught in the very act of adultery. Moses said, Stoner, what do you say that we should do? And notice what Jesus does. It says that he stooped down, he wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear them. 
is so interesting, the response of Jesus. As though he did not hear them. It's like he didn't really pay attention to them. And what I'm thinking is what the woman must have felt like at this point. Because like I said, I'm sure she was hysterical. I'm sure she's absolutely fearful uh, for her life. These guys were not messing around. They wanted to have her killed. And she doesn't know who Jesus is. She doesn't know if he's going to be the one to say absolutely right. We got to kill her. Moses said to do it. So there she is in all of the hysteria and all of the anxiety and all of the fear. And they lay out the case. Moses said to Stoner, what do you say? And he just acts like he doesn't hear him. It's, it's fascinating to me. And I wonder if at this point there wasn't something in her own experience where maybe there was just sort of a calm that came over her. Like, you know, maybe there's hope in this situation. We don't know. But the big question that has been asked that can never really be answered is what was Jesus writing on the ground? I wish we knew, but we're not told. But we can speculate. Many have done so. Uh, Some say, well, you know, perhaps he was writing out the commandments. Maybe so. It is interesting the way John describes this when John says that he wrote on the ground with his finger. There's another place in the Bible where you find the finger of God writing something. And that is back in the law. It's back in Exodus. When God gave the commandments, it says that the commandments were written with the finger of God on stone. And so it's almost like John is connecting those two things. Like the one who wrote the law is the one who's writing on the ground. The one who's the author of the law is standing with these men accusing this woman of violating the law. Some have speculated that maybe Jesus even wrote the names of the individuals alongside of the particular commandment that they had violated. Now, we don't know. That's speculation. But the answer of Jesus was completely unanticipated and it was irrefutable. And let me pick up with Arthur Katz because remember, he he just can't bear to see where this is going to go. But he opens the book and he sees that Jesus answered them. And this is what he wrote. He said, and then came the answer. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Katz says, I gasped. A sword had been plunged deep into my own being. It was numbing and shocking yet thrilling because the answer was so utterly perfect. It defied cerebral examination. It cut across every major issue I had ever anguished upon in my life. Truth, justice, righteousness, integrity. I knew that what I had read transcended human knowledge and comprehension. It had to be divine. This was the turning point for this man, Arthur Katz. It was this story that turned him into a believer as uh, in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. It was this story that impacted him. It is so impactful. And as he said, that in this answer that Jesus gave 
I love the way he says it cut across every major issue I had ever anguished upon in my life. Truth, justice, righteousness, integrity. All of those things were being displayed right there by Jesus and his dealings with this woman. And so the accusers, Jesus says, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And then he stooped down and continued to write on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. So this is the old, you know, whenever you point one finger at somebody, you've got three fingers pointing back at yourself. And this is what happened with these guys. So they're all smug. They're all self-righteous. We caught this woman. We caught her in the very act of adultery. Moses says, stoner, what do you say? I the brilliance of Jesus's response. He that is without sin, let him throw the first stone. And these guys, whether Jesus had written their names alongside of their sins or not, they were convicted by their own conscience. And having come in and all this fury and all of this aggression, they, this is the proverbial leaving with their tail between their legs. You know, they just had to sort of embarrassingly walk away. What could they say? And Jesus then speaks now to the woman. He said, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Wow, amazing. Because the reality is the one person there that day that could have condemned her was Jesus. Because he was the one person without sin. Think about that. The one that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Jesus is the only one. But what does he do? He doesn't throw a stone. He says, neither do I condemn you. And again, you see in this, we, we just see the radical grace of God. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. Our message to the world as followers of Jesus, the gospel is the good news that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. The Bible says the world is already condemned. We're condemned already. So Jesus doesn't come to condemn us. He comes to save us. He comes to save us out of the condemnation. And this story just so beautifully illustrates this, this truth. And it, it puts a flesh on this truth that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What kind of sinners? All kinds of sinners. What about adultery caught in the very act? Yep, he came to save that too. Or whatever it might be. You know, over and over and over again, throughout the long history of the church, the, the extent of God's grace has been limited. And the idea of, of God's free grace has been um, not realized by, by so many. Isn't it so true that there are, there are people today that will not come into a church, not because they 
hate God or anything like that, they won't come into a church because they feel condemned. They feel like, you know, I'm not worthy. I can't do that. I'm, my, I'm a sinner. I've, you know, I can't go there. God doesn't want to see me in his house. They, they sense their own condemnation and they feel that exclusion. But what they don't know is that the Lord does not condemn them. He didn't come to condemn them. And God help us to never give them uh, any more uh, support for their false view, but God help us as, as people who have experienced God's grace to extend God's grace and to, and to show people that there's, there's nothing that anyone has done that is beyond God's ability to forgive. And that's what that woman learned on this day. And that's what her story tells us. Now, the passage itself is, is so powerful. I, a woman told me a story this morning, and I got to share it with you. It's a little bit of an Arthur Katz story. It was her story. And she came up to me and she said that passage brought me to believe in Jesus out of Islam. And this is what she said. She said when she was a young girl, she was 13 years old, and the imam had told her, she lived in a Middle Eastern country, the imam had told her that because she wore fingernail polish and makeup and she liked those pretty kinds of things, that she was a sinner and she was condemned by Allah. And from the time she was a little girl, 13 years old, throughout her life, that's exactly what she felt. She lived with this sense that she was going to hell. She knew she was going to hell. She knew she was a sinner. But she said that somehow she came across this story. And she said it was this story that she read. And when she read it, she knew. This is what she said to me. She said, I knew that this was the true God. And I knew that I could be forgiven. And she trusted in Jesus. I thought, wow, how powerful. God's word. But that's exactly why this story is recorded for us, right? so that we could read it centuries later and know that this is how God sees the sinner. Not condemning us because we're already condemned. This is what the law does. Now, like I said, these guys, they're pointing at this woman that she's done this and they're, they're calling for her stoning, but they're suddenly reminded of the, the reality that they could equally be stoned. That's why they left. They might end up on the, the other end of that stoning because they knew that they were guilty. And when we come to that place of knowing the guilt of our sin, what God wants us to know is that there is forgiveness, that there is mercy. But you know, I think that there are a lot of people today 
whether you're a man or a woman and whatever the, the particular sin might be, there are a lot of people today who just hear that, that, that shout of, of stone her or stone him. There are a lot of people today who know that they have broken the law and they know God's law says stone them. They know that. They have that, that cry of, of condemnation ringing in their conscience their conscience would say stone them. And in some cases, even the crowd, there are people around that look and say, stone them. They, they deserve to be stoned. And we can be guilty of doing that sometimes, can't we? As Christians, we look at certain people and we, we see them as a menace. We see them as detrimental to society or whatever. And our, our first thought is stone them. Not literally, right? But the idea is, get, you know, get rid of them, wipe them out, judge them, kill them. But that's not God's heart. Remember the story of Jonah? Jonah is called by the Lord to go to the great city of Nineveh. And he's, he's called to go there and tell them that there's a judgment coming in 40 days. And you know the story. He doesn't want to go. He goes down to the port in Joppa. He gets on a ship. He tries to get as far away from there as possible. A uh, storm comes up. Jonah's thrown overboard. He's swallowed by the great fish. He's eventually coughed up on the shore. He heads off to Nineveh. He walks through the city. Says, 40 days and judgment is coming. And the people of Nineveh repent. And then Jonah says this. He said, you know, this is the reason why I didn't want to come here. Because I knew that these people might repent and you would forgive them. I knew you were a merciful God and I didn't want you to have mercy on them. You ever been a Jonah? <laughs> ever felt like Jonah? You know, we don't think that, that, that that's what the, the problem with Jonah was that. You know, some people think, oh, Jonah was afraid. He didn't want to go there because the Ninevites were so vicious and cruel. No, that wasn't the problem. Jonah's problem was with God. He thought God might forgive these people. I don't want him to forgive them. I want him to destroy them. I want him to wipe them off the face of the earth. And let's be careful that we not be like Jonah or like these people here. Or like those early church leaders who said, no, we got to get this text out of the Bible because we don't want anybody thinking that God's grace goes this far. This could create all kinds of problems. Now, you know, the truth of the matter is, and you know, people say that today. I mean, they say, you know, you're preaching too much grace and man, you preach grace and people are just going to, you know, they're going to live in sin and all of that. You know what? The truth of the matter is this. When you really experience the grace of God, when you get a hold of the reality of God's grace and his mercy and all that he's done for us, you know what it makes you want to do? It doesn't make you want to go out and sin. It makes you want to praise Jesus and it makes you want to give your entire life to him and do everything possible to glorify and please him because he saved a wretch like me. That's what grace does. Jesus, of course, knew that. And so he pours this amazing grace 
upon this woman. But listen, and maybe this even applies personally today to you. Maybe as you recognize yourself as a sinner, maybe all you hear is stone her, stone him. Or what I'm saying is maybe all you hear is, um, you know, there is no mercy. There is no hope. There is no forgiveness. There is no uh, way that you could ever be right with God. Know this, that is not the Savior's voice. The Savior says, no, I took your stoning Or in other words, I died. I was slain for your sins. I died for your crimes against God and man. I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. Jesus says, I do not condemn you. Not only does he say, I do not condemn you. In that, he says, I forgive you. I forgive you. I receive you. And notice, finally, I have freed you. What does he say to the woman? Go and sin no more. Jesus does not condemn us. He forgives us. He receives us. But then he tells us to go and sin no more. See, Jesus doesn't save us from our sins so we can keep living in them. Some people mistakenly think that. Oh, I'm forgiven and I just go on in this sin. No, no. The Lord says, go and sin no more. And you know, the forgiveness of Christ also supplies us with the power of the Spirit to go forward and now to live a life that honors God and glorifies God, a life that, that is a blessed life and a life that will be a blessing to others. So let's not make any mistake about it. You know, we hear a lot in the church today, and I, and I think on the one hand, it's good because I think that there has been a loss of grace in many cases. But then sometimes we, we kind of get a presentation of grace that says, you know, God loves you just as you are. Just, you know, don't worry about it. It's all his grace. You just essentially say, just you know, stay in your sin. Don't worry about it. It's okay. God still loves you. Well, God loves you in your sin, but he loves you too much to leave you in your sin because he knows your sin is destroying you. So he says, go and sin no more. And like I said, the beauty is that he gives us now what we didn't have before. He gives us the power of the spirit to live victoriously over sin. And so one of the great personal encounters with Jesus right here, one that takes a person who is seemingly hopelessly lost and brings them in and makes them a child of God and cleanses them and restores them and empowers them to go forward. And what was true then is true today. It's still happening today. 
Jesus doesn't condemn. Jesus forgives us and he receives us and he heals us. So Lord, we thank you that that is who you are and that is what you do and that is what you did then and you had this written down so we would know this. And even though for some it's just too radical, it's scandalous grace, we thank you that it is the truth. And Father, today, would you just overwhelm us again with your grace? Lord, may we have a grace awakening in our own hearts and may we become, as a result of that, the dispensers of your grace, your amazing grace. We thank you for that grace in the name of Jesus. Amen.